The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture comes from Luke 18, 9 through 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Morning. Good to see you guys. Uh, as Stacy said, my name's Kevin Twitt. I'm the REF campus minister at Belmont, uh, over just a stone's throw away from here. And uh, glad to be with you guys this morning as we're going to look at this parable. Um, I guess the place to begin is to consider why does Jesus tell this parable? And the great thing about this uh, passage is that Luke tells us exactly why Jesus tells this parable. He says, he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Now you might think that this is a gotcha kind of parable, and it is, but I hope that you will see that Jesus tells this parable not just to demonize the Pharisees, but to show us actually a picture of what self-righteousness looks like. Because self-righteousness is devilishly difficult to detect in ourselves. Self-righteousness is devilishly difficult to detect in ourselves. But I think if you push in a little further, he's not just giving us a picture of self-righteousness, but of what true spirituality looks like. True spirituality. Think his passage, he shows us, true spirituality is not just about our personal relationship with God, but also how we relate to our neighbor. Now, the, the context of this parable is public worship. That's important to understand. When it says that two men went up to the temple to pray, that is a a, a phrase that refers to public worship, not private devotions, okay? There were two services daily at the temple where a lamb would be sacrificed. And as the sacrifice was taking place, worshipers would gather to pray together. That's the setting of this story. And I'll come back to that a little later and you'll see why that's so important. The other thing to understand is that to the people of Jesus' day, the Pharisees were not the bad guys. 
Now, the longer you've been around Christianity and the more you've read the Bible or heard sermons, probably the more you think of the Pharisees as the bad guys. And particularly, you think that the word Pharisee literally means hypocrite. That's actually not what it means. The, the word Pharisee in the first century refers to the separated ones, the ones who separated themselves, but they were not seen in the first century as hypocrites. They actually were seen as the ones who really cared about God and his ways. They were the ones who cared about connecting the dots between political life and the spiritual life as well. They were the ones who opposed the Jewish puppet king named Herod, who was a compromised ruler so that the Romans wouldn't get upset with the Jews. They were in league, the Jewish leadership, with the oppressive Roman authorities and the Pharisees were the ones who stood against that. They were the ones who wouldn't accept the compromise the Jewish leadership had made with the political rulers to keep their power. Do you know that? Do you remember near the end of the gospels, the Jewish leaders have a debate. Jesus is getting more and more popular and they're like, we've got to deal with this guy. Do you remember what they say? They, they say in particular, everybody's going after this guy and we better deal with him because the, the Romans are liable to take away our power. That's their real concern. If this Jesus guy starts stirring up the crowds too much, going against the status quo, upsetting the compromise that we've made, then the Romans are gonna intervene and take away our power. That's their real fear. So they turn a blind eye to what God would call his people to do, lest it threaten their power and their position. And the Pharisees were the ones who were infused to embrace that compromise. They were the ones who separated themselves from the compromised Jewish leadership and devoted their life to godliness that could be seen. That's important. Godliness that could be seen, not just in regard to personal morality, which is how we always think about them. The Pharisees are the ones that care about all these picky little things, but you gotta understand this in the bigger context. They believed that it was only if you got serious about God and his ways and conformed your life to what God said, then God would bless them and deliver them from the Romans. And they felt that the reason God had not yet delivered them from the Romans was because of the compromised political leadership and the lack of justice. They believed that until the Jewish leadership got back to focusing on God and his ways and took his commands seriously, God could not deliver them, would not deliver them from the Roman oppressors. I don't know about you. Seems I hear eerily similar rhetoric sometimes from Christian nationalists today, who think that until we get serious in our nation and our political leaders about honoring God and his ways, then God will never bless us. I'm not gonna go down that road today, but it's worth pondering. But notice this, their whole approach flows out of a fundamental misunderstanding about relationship with God. And it's revealed, it's revealed by the way they pray and worship. Now, the Catholics have a phrase, Latin phrase, that I think is important to, to bring in here at this point. Lex 
credendi, lex arandi. There's different ways to translate it, but generally it means this. The law of faith is the law of prayer. And there's two ways in which people understand this, liturgical theologians and, and the Catholics as well, uh, understand this to be the way that you pray forms and shapes the way that you believe, and also the way you pray, the way you worship, reveals what you truly believe. I think you see this, uh, particularly that second aspect in this parable. The way that these two men pray is very revealing, isn't it? The Pharisees, you see, believe that the way they live and practice their devotion to God will constrain God to act. And this flows over into the way they look at their neighbor. This is always true. The way we relate to God can always be seen in the way we relate to our neighbor. It may not be the way we think we believe about God, but the way we relate to our neighbor is always revealing something about the relationship we have with God in particular, the basis upon which we believe we can be acceptable to God is always seen, not just in the way we pray and worship, but in the way we treat our neighbor. That's why I think Jesus is doing more here than just saying, you're self-righteous, stop it. I, I think he's actually showing us that there are two ways to be self-righteous, but I'll talk about that in a second. So, you know, from the other things, that Jesus says to the Pharisees, because he speaks about the Pharisees a lot, and that would make sense because again, they're seen as like the Billy Grahams of their day. They're seen as the people that haven't compromised, that really care about God and his ways and calling God's people back to honoring God and his ways. But from other things that Jesus says to the Pharisees, we learn this, they have focused their spirituality on what they do with little focus on the heart. It's why Jesus condemns them as being obsessed with cleaning the outside of the cup while ignoring the heart issues and attitudes. And you see that in this story as well. The kinds of things that he thanks God that he's not like are all these kind of external things. When he looks at himself and he looks at the tax collector, he's focused on externals, that's why he differentiates himself, right? And here's the crazy thing. I suspect that the Pharisee actually thought he was being helpful because that's the way self-righteousness tends to work. I, I remember years ago, I, I had a student and we were talking some about spirituality. Actually, I won't get into the whole situation, but it had to do with a particular moral decision that I said, I think you're free to do this. I don't think I see anything in the Bible that says you can't do this. Uh, and his mom in particular was pretty upset with what I said. Now, I won't, I won't get into that. I know that's intriguing. I shouldn't leave you hanging there, but, but here's the point. As I entered into a discussion, actually at one point, we had to have like an emergency meeting with a couple of the elders early on a Saturday morning um, to discuss the concerns. And that was fine, that was appropriate. But in the course of that meeting, I learned that um, what this lady really considered her most important ministry, and this was before Twitter, or I'm sure she would have a Twitter account, maybe does. Um, I have no idea what happened. This, this was like over 20 years ago, okay? But here was just a, kind of blew my mind. She literally would write about 15 to 20 letters a week to people she didn't know, rebuking them for their sin, and she thought it was helpful. 
right? Like some of the Twitter accounts, you know, that I, that I follow. Sometimes self-righteousness is devilishly difficult to discern, to detect in ourselves, and sometimes it's masquerading on the guise of helpfulness, which is uh, kind of crazy. Jesus, though, here showing us that true spirituality is about right relationship with God that spills over into the way we relate to those around us, in particular, in how we regard those that we consider unclean sinners. As I said, spirituality is never just about you and your personal relationship with God. Just look at how the Pharisee looks down on the tax collector. There is no, Lord, help us, Lord, heal us. There isn't even, Lord, heal him, help him. There is only, God, thank you that I am not like him. And I think it's pretty clear that there is no true thankfulness in his heart. He clearly does not regard God's grace as what makes the difference between him and the tax collector. As I said, self-righteousness is subtle and devilishly difficult to detect in ourselves. And Jesus wants to help us, not just to shame us, but to deliver us. So he gives a picture here of what it looks like and how blind it can be, even when it's clear to other people. Now, I don't know um, if this quote will be helpful to you, but I've always thought this was really interesting. So one of my absolute favorite authors is a guy named Chuck Klosterman. I don't know if you guys know Chuck Klosterman. He writes mostly on pop culture and sports. Uh, I don't really follow sports that much, except I do love the Predators, I have to admit, but I don't know if he ever addresses hockey, so I don't really read that kind of stuff he writes, but I love uh, his writing on pop culture, full of what I would call common grace wisdom. He's not a Christian, but amazing common grace insights, particularly in a book called Sex, Drugs, and Cocoa Puffs. I commend it to you, I really do. Uh, It's a little older, and so this illustration is a bit dated, but he has a chapter in there uh, called Toby versus Moby. And some of you may uh, be old enough to remember the artist Moby, and I'm sure all of you know Toby Keith. And he's basically talking about Nashville, and he's talking about country music. And he's particularly talking about sort of the, the hipster disdain for modern country music. And, and to get at that, he actually quotes a guy who's passed away not too long ago, David Berman, of a band, The Silver Jews, maybe some of y'all know, and a quote that uh, Berman had in an interview in the national scene, right? So here's Klosterman uh, referencing this quote. He says, the most wretched people in the world are those who tell you they like every kind of music except country. Maybe somebody can relate. That's certainly what I would say when I moved to Nashville. People who say that are both boorish and pretentious at the same time. All it means is they've managed to figure out the most rudimentary rule of pop sociology. They know that hipsters gauge the coolness of others by their espoused taste and sound. And they know that hipsters hate modern country music. And they hate it because it speaks to normal people in a tangible, rational manner. Hipsters hate it because they hate Midwesterners, they hate Southerners, and they hate people with real jobs. Now, here's here's what he's saying. He's basically saying there's almost like a a, a fetishization of like sort of depression era life among a lot of people. But actually, if you listen to the music that speaks 
to the people who live like that, they really like what he would call Walmart country. And it's fascinating. I, I think about this sometimes, the kind of self-righteousness that he talks about. He's picked up this rule of pop sociology. Uh, it didn't take me long being at Belmont to see this, of course. You know, the little map that sort of describes Nashville or whatever city you're from by like the different uh, icons about different things. And of course, Belmont is listed there as the hipster university few years ago. Well, I remember, you know, I have this common uh, experience when I meet a new student and I'll often just try to get to know them a little bit. I'll say something like, you know, what kind of music do you like? Or what's your favorite band? And it's fascinating how often, of course, they mention a band I've never heard of, but there's almost like a one-upmanship to how obscure the band that they love is. And I, I reminded of that time, um, uh, oh, who was it? The, uh, the, the late night guy who was interviewing people at Coachella and was telling about different bands and he was literally making up band names and interviewing people. Hey, I'm really excited to so hear so-and-so. And they're like, yeah, I can't wait. They're awesome. And they were all completely made up names. Um, but that's what I, that's what I kind of expect one day. I'm going to ask some student about their favorite band. They're going to be like, well, I really love this band. They haven't released any music. They haven't ever played any shows. Like three people go to their rehearsals in their basement, but they're awesome. Right? And that's like the ultimate. How can you even trump that? Self-righteousness, we can take any kind of form. Even the most ridiculous, superficial things that we had nothing to do with, we can use to look down our nose at other people. Because sometimes we believe that even the things that we have been gifted, even the things that we did nothing to earn, we still get credit for and still put us in a position of superiority to other people. Spirituality is never just about our personal relationship with God, but the way we relate to God is seen in the way we pray and the way we look at other people. But spirituality is not groveling either. And I think that's really important for us to see in this passage. True spirituality flows out of a faith, even if it's just a kernel of faith, that God will receive the broken and the helpless ones who look to him for healing. I don't know if you understand this or not, but tax collectors, according to the rules of the day, really were basically told in every sort of way, you have no right to come and worship. Who is a tax collector? Well, the tax collector was considered a thief and a traitor because they worked for the Romans. The Romans would actually auction off the job of tax collector and people would bid on it and they would buy it because if you got that job, you only had to pay the Romans what they asked for, but you had the right to charge whatever you could extort from people. And so they were seen not just as being in league with the Romans, but being morally bankrupt and oppressive to their own people. His body language, of course, shows that he barely feels like he has a right to be there, right? He stands far off. He feels totally unworthy, but don't miss this. He's there. He's still there, right? We must never make light of the fact that no matter whether or not you feel a right to be here, being here matters. Being here matters, and we're glad you're here, and we pray that God would always encourage you to be here, no matter how the week has went. 
no matter how the year has went, no matter how last night has went, that you wouldn't stay far off, but you would know you're welcome here, right? And his prayer here, he uses the Greek word for mercy, but it's really actually a word that refers to atonement. The normal word for mercy is used uh, later in this chapter in verse 17. He is asking not just for mercy, not just for God to turn a blind eye to who he is and to what he's done, but to make atonement, to make covering, to resolve the guilt that keeps him from God. And of course he is, because the sacrifice of the lamb is happening right before his very eyes. Now it's interesting, the translation that we read from says his prayer, these words, God be merciful to me, a sinner. But in the Greek, it's actually the definite article. It's God be merciful to me, the sinner. He is overwhelmed by who he is before God. And that is a gift of God's grace. I love that old hymn, you probably sing it here sometime, Come Ye Sinners, Weak and Wounded, Sick and Sort, right? You know that one? And that fourth verse, let not conscience make you linger. He's talking about coming to God. Let not conscience make you linger. Oh, Lord, you don't know what I've done. Nor of fitness fondly dream. Oh, I'll come once I've made a real commitment to changing my life. Then I can have the, the, uh, the, the, the basis for being able to cry out to you. All the fitness, the hymn says, all the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. But then this is the best part of that verse, the next line. This he gives you, this he gives you, tis the Spirit's rising beam. And what that means is, even feeling your need of God is not something you can or need to wump up from amongst, among your own heart. Because, of course, if you're at all an introspective, morbidly introspective person, and I expect almost everybody in our culture today is, then you're gonna begin to wonder, have I really sufficiently felt my need? Like, what if, you know, later I hear a gospel message, and I'm like, oh man, now I really uh, feel my need. There are a lot of people, a lot of students I work with who've grown up under that kind of oppression, where every week they basically need to sort of run, redouble their feeling of helplessness and come to the altar again, right? Now it's appropriate to regularly come to God and say, I need you and I see now how much I need you, but you must never believe that seeing your need is what qualifies you to receive grace. It's actually the first manifestation that God's grace is at work in your life. And that's why he says, tis the Spirit's rising beam. It's the life-giving work of the Spirit to even help you see your need of him. It's not the thing you have to wump up that qualifies you for grace. It's not a work, right? And look at Jesus' conclusion. Only one went away justified or made righteous. Now, some people have said that Jesus never really cares about justification. That's a Pauline invention. Well, Jesus uses that word here. He certainly cares about how we stand before God, right? True spirituality is not about groveling. You see, groveling actually is often another way to get God over a barrel 
and compel him to do what we want him to do. Oh, it's easier to see in the Pharisee who, who basically considers all the things he's doing as ways to compel God to come and deliver Israel from the Roman oppressors. But the same heart can exist in grovelers who may actually look very spiritual. I, I, I think about this quote from the great old Baptist preacher, Charles Spurgeon, where he talks about how even beating ourselves up can become a rival to Christ's righteousness. Listen to what he said. Your healing is in his stripes, not in your own. In his griefs, not in your griefs. He's not saying don't grieve, but listen to what he's saying. I implore you, do not make your repentance into a rival for the stripes of Jesus, for so then it would become an antichrist. When your eye is full of tears, look through them to Christ, whom you may see, whether your eye be wet or dry. In the Christ on the cross, there are five wounds, but you do not have to add even another one of your own to them. In him and in him alone is all your healing. In him who from head to foot became a mass of suffering that you, diseased from head to foot, might from the crown of your head to the sole of your foot be made perfectly whole. Remember, remember, groveling can become a way of demanding something from God. And it's subtle. Just like self-righteousness of, of the Pharisee is subtle, so is this subtleness of groveling and feeling God owes me because I'm so broken. Look at the sacrifice as well as we come to the, the end of this sermon. Remember, the whole event is taking place at public worship in front of the burning sacrificial altar. And that's huge. Because the only way out of the trap of self-righteousness is to see the sufficiency of what God has done. It's the only thing that will allow you to let go of what you are trusting in. I love this passage in Isaiah 44. One of the best passages in the Bible talks about idolatry. But at one point it says that when you are trusting in something other than God, which is what the Bible calls an idol, it says that you can't even see that the thing in your right hand is a lie. Uh, the, the thing in your right hand, in the Bible's way of referring to it, is the thing that you're trusting to for power. It's the thing that you use to console yourself when things are hard. It's the thing that you look to when you feel God has not treated you fairly and you say, how, how come you haven't come through for me? Haven't you considered this way that I've lived and these things that I've done? That's your power. And here's the thing, until you see that you don't need it, you can't let go of it be psychologically devastating unless you see the sacrifice with open eyes and understand that I don't need this thing because of the sufficiency of what Jesus has done. It's when we forget the full sufficiency of Christ's righteousness that we look to desperately try to build up our own. We need regular faith sights of the more than full sufficiency of Jesus' robe of righteousness to close us to clothe us, it's only then that our defenses can melt away and we can loose our grip on the tattered rags of righteousness of whatever form. 
Have you ever loved like Jesus? Have you ever sought the glory of the Father like Jesus? Then why on earth would you and I cling to our own righteousness? How can it compare? How can it compare? Oh, your righteousness, my righteousness may look good compared to some. That's what the Pharisee was counting on. (laughs) But in light of the sacrifice, it's revealed to be so, so ugly. Our righteousness, our own righteousness is often a rival to Christ. It's a way of saying his death was not enough. And this is the teaching, this is the message that brought about that great revival we call the first great awakening. Listen to this passage from George Whitfield. Not a perfect man, but this, this quote I think is, is really helpful. He says, before you can have peace in your hearts, you must not only be sick of your sins, but you must be made sick of your righteousness, of the, of the crowns that you've tried to, to place on your own head. You must be sick of all your duties and performances. There must be a deep conviction before you can be brought out of your self-righteousness. It is the last idol that is taking out of your heart. The pride of our heart will not let us submit to the righteousness of Christ. If you have never felt the deficiency of your own righteousness, maybe you have never come to Jesus. There are a great many now who will say, well, we believe all this, but there is a great difference between talking and feeling Did you ever feel the need of a dear redeemer? Did you ever feel the deficiency of your own righteousness? And can you now say from the heart, Lord, you may damn me for the best things that I've done because they're still not enough. Couple concluding applications. What do we think God owes us? And more importantly, why? The answer is a Good, a good clue to what we may be truly trusting in. But if you are here today and you're feeling like maybe I don't have a right to be here, maybe I don't have a right to come to this table, groveling is not the answer, nor is patting yourself on the back and congratulating yourself that you're not like other people that you can look around and see and whose lives you know about. No, the answer is knowing that the smile of God has been secured by what Jesus did. Do you know 1 John 1, 9, where it says when we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great uh, Welsh preacher said, it would be unjust of God to not forgive those for whom Christ has died. Do you believe that? That is what qualifies us to come to this table. Do you see your own sin as overwhelming? Well, pray that God would reveal it to you if you don't, but pray as well that God would give you a precious faith sight of the atonement, of the sacrifice. In fact, pray that he would give you and pray that he would give me such a view of the cross and Jesus is dying that I would run away from anything that would want to be a rival to that. I remember this, um, this great uh, line from another preacher, this story uh, about the thief on the cross who gets up to heaven and uh, somebody says to him, what, what right do you have to be here? Come on, seriously. And, and, and his simple response, the man on the middle cross said I could come. That's the key. That's the key. 
Look at him now. You sing this hymn maybe sometimes. Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off thy guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice of my behalf appears. Before the throne, my surety stands. Before the throne, my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. Charles Wesley's great hymn. Uh, I, I was asked one time where we had found that hymn that we sing all the time in RUF. And uh, I was asked by a guy who's the, the worship research professor at Duke and a great Methodist hymn scholar. He said, I consider it one of Charles Wesley's greatest hymns, but it hasn't been in a Methodist hymn book for 100 years, right? And I said, well, the Presbyterians still sing it. It's in our, um, it's in our hymn book. It's in our hymn book because it's a beautiful hymn about communion. But here's the fascinating thing. Charles Wesley would get letters all the time from people about how his hymns had been used in their spiritual lives, in their conversion. And you know a lot of his hymns, right? Hark the herald angels sing, right? Uh, so, so many of these wonderful hymns, uh, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, all these things. He got more letters about arise, my soul arise, leading to people's conversion than any other hymn he wrote. Out of the 6,000 hymns that he wrote. Why? Because it's all about having your eyes opened to see the sacrifice of Jesus. That's the only thing that can humble the Pharisees and can lift up those who are groveling. Open our eyes to see Jesus. Sacrifice for us the full sufficiency. I'm gonna pray and then Stacy is gonna bring us to the table. Lord, we thank you that your sacrifice is fully sufficient, that it humbles us and it makes us bold. And Lord, we need your help for both. We don't have it in our own power to even connect the dots, but you send your spirit to open our eyes to see Jesus, to see Christ crucified as sufficient, more than sufficient to humble us and to make us bold. We ask that you do this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.